The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-25. through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, um, good morning. My name is Stacy Croft, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm actually the pastor here at um, Christ Press Music Row and have the joy um, every week to actually talk about God's Word. Uh, exactly what Wynn um, said beautifully is, and, 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 and by the way, the elements that you've heard uh, from Wynn, and you'll hear in a minute from Graham Taylor at, at, when we talk about communion, uh, are what our students are learning. And it's actually to teach us uh, and to, for us to know why do we do what we do. Um, in my former days, I was a, a campus minister at Vanderbilt University. Have actually have some students here and former students visiting today, which is so sweet to see. And... Um, we actually, every year, used to do a thing we called the Parents' Brunch on Family Weekend. It was an awesome time for me to get to see uh, uh, why our students are so messed up. I mean, so sweet and who they are. And, um, but it was always fun to meet their folks. And, uh, but it, it, the, the great thing about it is we had hundreds of people come in, and we would have it on campus, and we would have it uh, in one of the um, actual dining areas of campus, and I had them serve the food that they have in campus so the parents can taste what their parents, their kids have been subject to the whole of semester and what they're paying for. But um, it was sweet because I, had a, I usually had a student speak, a parent speak, and I spoke. And, you know, one of the biggest parts of it was to make sure that the parents knew, number one, this is not a cult. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and you laugh, but in some ways, uh, parents were coming to that asking, okay, what is this RUF thing? What is this thing they're a part of? Uh, is this like to keep them out of trouble? Like, is this going to take them away from their school? Uh, they, you know, not, may not think cultish, but they may think, you know, what, what, what are they getting into here? What is this kind of idealistic thing? And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, 
really speaking not only one-on-one to parents, but when I spoke, really addressing that what is our purpose? You know, are we just another community? Just come to us. We're better than all the other ones. Um, are we just some sort of a thing that's supposed to make uh, the students make straight A's all the time? <laughs> or is there something deeper and more profound that we want to see um, our, our students become and then be? You could ask the same thing, thing about what we're doing here. Why are we here? You know, we are here to worship, but what does that do in us? Um, how does it work its way out? You know, one of the things we're doing, and we're looking at, and this is typically what we do in our church, we unpack a book or a letter of the Bible and, and walk through it together. We really value what is in the Bible and what is it saying to us. And so we're looking at a, at a letter called First Peter. You may be familiar, even if you're here and you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of, of the Lord or, or new to church, that, that Peter was one of the most profound and, and famous um, OG disciples and apostles uh, in the Bible. And he not only had a lot of narrative accounts written about him, but he actually wrote two letters. And we're looking at the first one and walking through it. And one of the things that you, you'll notice, and as you, as you did even just listening to that passage that was just read, is that Peter does this thing where he really connects your theology with your practice. Like, what, who are we really has to connect with? What are we doing? What does it do in us and through us? Theologians over the centuries have called that the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is who you are, the fact that you are ransomed, saved, and are in Christ. But the imperative is that command of do this, do this. And what Peter does really, really well and almost seamlessly is take the indicative and imperative and put them so laced together that you're weaving through it. And it's beautifully done so that you're, you're never a detached from who you are and then what you live out. And this is why if you read the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, that gospel was written by Mark who followed around Peter. It's re- one reason it's so short and to the point. Who's Jesus? Here's Jesus. This is who he is. Doesn't waste any words. Peter does the very same thing. And what he gets to here is, what does it mean for us to be set apart? In fact, he uses the word holiness or holy. And what holy means is being set apart. And that's what we're going to really dive into today. What does it mean for us to be set apart? What does it mean for us first to live as set apart? And two, what does it mean that God has set us apart? <clears throat> what does it mean for us to live set apart? Like, what, what, do we, what does it look like for us? And then what does it mean for us to know that God has set us apart? It's not up to us, it's what he has done. You know, the passage begins... verse 13, by saying, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anytime you see the word therefore in the beginning of a passage, now some of you may know where I'm going with this, you're always supposed to ask, what is it there for? Now, I know that's kind of a silly, cheesy quip, but it actually helps you because the original readers of this and hearers of this letter would have been asking the question of, okay, then connected to, right? 
And he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. In other words, he's saying, always be alert. To prepare your mind for action was the same language used, actually in the Greek translation, to gird up your loins. In other words, what it means is they used to wear longer robes over their tunics with belts. And so actually the, the idea is for them to pick up the robe if they needed to go into some sort of work, labor, action, military work, whatever it is, they would take their robe and tuck it up, any of the loose parts, up into their belt so their legs could be more free and run in. And so the point of this picture is to say, where are our minds tucking this in ready, alert, ready to go? It's, it wasn't an intellectual idea. It was more of a disposition and a plan. It was something ready to go. The idea came essentially first from in the Exodus when God would bring his people out of Israel on the night of the Passover, that evening when they would actually leave, God said to his people, be ready to leave in haste, even while you're eating. Prepare for action. It was this moment of being ready to move out. Because at any point, God's timing, he could say, time to go. There's also a parable that Jesus says, and I'm sure Luke, uh, that uh, Peter would have picked up on from Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 35 says this, it begins, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. See, what we're supposed to be is prepared for action, that knowing that at some point Jesus is going to return. We say that, I say this every week when I go to this table, and, and, and I, I remind us of this, but this is where Peter's hitting when we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, when I always say, and he, if he's come once, he will come again, what we're doing in preparing our minds for action is getting, being ready all the time. It's an alertness. It's being alert. It's living our lives not thinking, well, this is the best it gets, this is all there is, or thinking that it, we're done here, but that Jesus is going to return and make all things new that he is going to return in the same way he came, and that our lives, the way that we live out our life is to be in an alert posture. It's a planning. It's a direction. It's movement. It's that we're constantly thinking how we're living now is in preparation of when he comes. And we may not know the time. In fact, we don't know the time. Just as Jesus was saying in that parable. Look, I have a dog. Um, <clears throat> his name's Cinco. Cinco de Mayo, yes. He was actually born on the 4th of July. We just like the name Cinco, so. Um, he's a, a Cavapoo, and if you ever talk to me on the phone, some of you talk to me on the phone, and I'll, I'll actually have him or walk with him, and he'll bark, and it'll automatically let you know this is not a ferocious, huge dog. But every time I come home, <clears throat> my dog is uh, one of the sweetest dudes ever, and after this morning, I'll head home and um, open the door, and he doesn't just shake his tail. He shakes his whole backside. Like, he's like, yes, you're here, and he just loves me. He, now, 
he does this for me, but you should see how he is with Megan. With Megan, my wife, it's like crazy. Like, where is she? If I say, like, my hint is if I say mama, he actually will sit up and, like, look around. Like, where is she? But when I come home, this is a ritual we always do. I'll, I'll literally come in, lay on the floor, and the dog will jump on my chest and just sit and make sure I rub his shoulders and his neck. And he'll just sit his head up like this, like, I have you now. You know, like, and that, and just, but here's the interesting thing about him. It's not just when I leave for a morning like this and I'm hours away. Literally, if I take the trash out and come back in, he will be ready. He's there, booty shaking, and he's got me there. And he sits on my chest and he expects me to rub him down. He's always alert. He lives in a posture. He doesn't know the timing at all, and yet he lives in a posture because his relationship, his love for me and some wild, incredible attachment, caring, dog-like love is there. That's, that's that preparing your mind for action, being ready. And then it says, and not only that, being soberly minded. So preparing your mind for action vertically, but horizontally, what does it mean to be sober minded? It means that we're realistic and clear. It means that we're not numbing ourselves. And yes, it, I think we could venture into the territory of a commentary of what are we putting into ourselves to numb ourselves from this life or, or working it. But we could also say, are we just living our life from what the next weekend to the next? Or the next vacation? Or what we have in front of us? Or are we meditating on worry so much or anxiety that we really spend so much of our time with that that we don't have a clear mind. We don't engage this world with realism. And that's not a commentary that we don't have anxiety in our life, but it's the fact that do we meditate more on that than we do on whose we are, being sober-minded, self-controlled, that, that learning what it means to set our focus and our hope on the Lord. That's why it begins, it says, being sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an active work to set our hope. As the Bible talks about often, hope isn't something that we wish for. Oftentimes we read it that way and we put ourselves in a position of hope, but the Bible always says hope is an actual fixed thing. It's something that is going to occur. And right now it's setting our hope, uh, setting <clears throat> your hope fully on the grace that will be uh, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an object and a direction of that hope. It's actually, in other words, picturing the process of it. Uh, I've really been able to uh, have the joy of coaching two different kind of uh, groups this season. One is uh, coaching eight-year-old first grade uh, baseball players, which has been really sweet. And then also coaching uh, track at uh, St. Paul, uh, a small private school where my kids go. And um, a lot of students, and, and one of my joys in doing that is getting to know, it's not, it's not really just the coaching part, it's actually getting to know the kids. I really love that and getting to know their hearts and uh, how they interact with it. 
And one of the things that's really important is that it, is, is their learning over and over, and even as we had our final meet this last week, every student is in a different place. So they're all learning like different ways to hit or different things to jump over, a, a, you know, a, a bar for high jump or throwing a shot put or running down a track. You know, they're all learning different processes, but they all wear the same uniform. And one of the things that's really important for us to know is and to think about, they're all wearing the same uniform. They all know how much I love them and care for them, and yet they all know how much I'm encouraging them to grow in that process and where they are and who they are. And what it means to be holy, what it means for us to grow, as it says, obedient children, what it means for us to set our hope in that process is that it really does matter where we are in our growth as children. In fact, kids and students, I want you to hear this especially. When it says in verse 14, as obedient children, the actual Greek of that is children of obedience. So it's not about the work and process as much as it is, first, whose child you are. That you operate out of the same stance of, I am a son, I am a daughter. Because of that, I listen. Because of that, it transforms how I enter into the process, how I work out my salvation. And we do, we're called to take it up. It's not a question of, are you on the team? Do you have the uniform? Does my coach care for me? It's a question more of, from those things, notice the indicative imperative, how am I living into the commands of God and acting as a child of obedience? Not just an obedient child. Are you doing good? But a child of obedience. One of the richest things to me, and it's still kind of a funny deal as a parent, is when somebody comes up to me <laughs> and says, you know, your son did the sweetest thing the other day. And, and sometimes they'll see on my face and I'm like, oh, that's great. Because, you know, like, I don't often, always encounter that side of them in those moments. <laughs> And many of you know that, like if, if, if you work with children, if you're around, you know that you see sometimes the things that other people don't see. And what, what's rich about that to me isn't, gosh, I wish they would just do that at home, hurry it up. Yeah, okay, that's there. But it's more of, wow, they actually have internalized and listened and taken on what it means not to live out me but to live out kindness, to live out loyalty, to live out love. And that's what the Lord is saying to us, to be a child of obedience. And don't you know that God, I mean, we just had confession earlier, don't you know God is constantly in his patience and wisdom watching us and knowing that we're always veering off. We are not always obedient. But he knows the rich joy and he sees in us when we're carrying out and embodying who we really are out to those around us. And as it says, they're shaped by the gospel. Look at that. In verse 22 to 25, 
What shapes us? Where do we go back to? It's being purified in our souls by our obedience to the truth, sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And I have to say, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor and quotes this this verse every week after the Bible's read. As, As we always say, this is the word of the Lord, praise be to Christ. He always reads, all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like flower of the grass. And then the congregation, I always hear it in the background when I listen to his sermons, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what's incredible about this is, and he goes on to say, it remains forever, and this is the word, is the good news that was preached to you. That where do we come from? What actually shapes us to do these things? It's the gospel. It's the good news of the Lord. I mean, how would we know God's character? How would we know these things if we didn't have the, the scripture to shape us, this Bible that, is, that Paul, Paul and Peter and others call the good news that is wrapped up in who we are in the revelation of Jesus? This is why Peter himself later on would be called out by Paul when Peter was supposed to be caring for people, he decided, uh, as a Jew, he felt like he couldn't be with the, some Gentile friends. And Paul calls him out on it. You can read about it in his letter of Galatians. And he says, I found Peter out of step with the gospel. How do we know when we're out of step? We wouldn't know if the gospel, the good news, didn't speak into us and through us to live this out. This is why it's so important that we live set apart, not by our own rules and standards, but by God's good news towards us. See, who set us apart? Why? You know, here's a little behind the curtain thing. Uh, we can talk a lot about living out and being set apart, but the question that every pastor always asks in a sermon is why does this matter? What does this matter to us? This is why parent brunches. <laughs> you know, when we do these kinds of why, why are we here? Is this just a fundraiser, or are we here to, to talk about something that really deeply impacts and changes? Why does it matter? See, Peter writes it beautifully. When he starts, he says, but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And you may notice it's in quotation marks because this is taken from a book called Leviticus. And if you started, let's see, we're in uh, almost a May, which means many of you, if you started some sort of Bible reading program in January, you started Genesis and you were like, yes, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, the ones where you're like, why? Why is there another bull being killed here? Like, what's the deal? That's that book, Leviticus. And of all books for Peter to quote, why in the world does he quote that? He quotes Leviticus because behind every bull being sacrificed, behind all the blood, all the laws, do this, do that. Most of the time we read that and we think, it's Old Testament, what do I do with this? Why God has all these things isn't because he wants them to have a better diet. And it isn't because he wants them to feel better about themselves or just say, we do this, our group is better, you do this, Israel's better because we do this. He actually wants them to do these things to reflect him. 
be holy as I am holy is a reflection of God's character being set apart because they are reflecting him. And I think this is, this is a huge thing for us as we think about what does it mean to, be, to not only live as set apart and holy, but to be set apart by God and how this connects, is all of us are reflecting some sort of holiness. It says, be holy as I am holy. But for many of us, holiness, and especially you talk about it in a church, it may say, be holy as I do these things during the week. Maybe you do a Bible study. Maybe you're coming to church regularly. Maybe holiness for you is, I just want to get nicer. I don't want people to be as mad at me. Maybe holiness is a certain person you look at. And if that is the reflection of holiness for you, you will, you'll hit it every time. You'll get it. But this is where so many people, and you may be here this morning, you've been burned or bored or cynical with the church or even Christianity And this is where Christianity and Christians themselves have been labeled so judgy because for most of us, holiness has been a standard that we can hit and we tell other people they need to hit too. But if you read this and it says, be holy as I am holy, that should never drive us to our own standard of I've done this, be like me. It should actually humble us to say, oh my word. that God wants me to reflect his character and grow as like he is, and yet I fail. And yet God says, be holy as I am holy, because this is the character of God. This is who God is. This is who he wants us to be and who we're to be made to be, that you are to be set apart for him, and not in the ways often, again, that we may think. And those things can be good things, but if that is the standard, this is why Jesus always was having arguments with the Pharisees. He had arguments with the religious leaders all the time, and they said to him, well, we do this, we do that. And he said back to him, then your reward is in full already. You have your reward. And you made it, in other words, Jesus is saying. If that's your level of holiness, you made it, you're there. You don't need anything else. But God says, be holy as I am holy. And so that should reflect back to us to say, God, how am I living for you? How, what am I being shaped into? You notice there is a verse here that it should unnerve us just a little bit because it actually is true. When it says in verse 17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It is saying that yes, God is father, but he is also judge. And our deeds matter. How we live matters. And God will hold us accountable for how we carry out that reflection. Now, that doesn't mean that you're saved by those, but if you're someone who says, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, he does say, I do 
hold the deeds important. I do hold these things with deep importance. And this is why Proverbs, and I think this is really important to dig into for a moment, because this is why I think Proverbs and other books say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, that the Old Testament is replete with passages that fear God. And we typically think fear and intimacy don't have anything to do with each other. But this is saying he's both father and judge who judges impartially. He doesn't look on with favoritism towards your deeds as if you've done a better job of someone else. That to fearing him, we need to know fear and intimacy must go together. They must. Because if, if you have intimacy with God without fear, then really, is God powerful enough to handle the things in our life? The evil we see around us that we've encountered? Uh, is he really the king on the throne? I mean, he may be close to us and love us, but then is he really big enough to handle the things that I'm truly afraid of in my life? And if we have fear of him without intimacy, we can sometimes move into other realms of philosophies or even other religions, or is God really that close to us? Can we really know him at all? But see, fear and intimacy must go together. See, in order to be really known by someone, they have to get close to you enough to know the things about you that really aren't the best things about you. In fact, I would say the most profound loving relationships that you have in your life on a human level contain both fear and intimacy. How much more on a divine level? that God expects and does that with us. In fact, I would say fear and life go together. It's a clear view of reality. See, the, the fears you have in your life show exactly how you run your life. Whatever the size of your fear is, is to the exact correlation of how you live your life. Fear is in there. And what if the Lord is trying to teach us that fear and, and wisdom have to go together? Because in order to understand this world, to rightly size the fears we have in our life, what if God is the ultimate to, to show our seer, fears in their right size? It doesn't mean we don't fear things. It doesn't mean we don't have difficulty or anxiety, but that we can see them in the right order or size. Isn't it when, and, and I hear this often, when fear becomes more global, more large, then we just think, who can handle this? Think about even the, the readers of this passage, that what they're asking in First Peter, is it worth it to follow Jesus? I mean, the, the original hearers of First Peter are suffering at so many hands and, and seeing so many atrocities and they're asking, is it worth to follow, to live out, to express openly, publicly, following this Savior? Is he really big enough? This is what Peter's wanting us to see, that he is the ultimate one. This is why the Old Testament is replete with these, that wisdom is to show us that this world does not revolve around us. This is why he says we're exiles over and over. <laughs> that we're exiles. We heard it the very first week when Paul Lim preached to us, which was so beautiful. That we're aliens 
We're exiles here. That, that it shouldn't fit just right all the time. It shouldn't fit just perfectly with everything here in this life because we know it's not finished yet. We know that God has done more. And he does this. He says, it's not just that we conduct ourselves with that fear, but that we know that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited for your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You know, when we come to this table every week, this table is that illustration that you and I get to actually taste just circles. But it actually was a commercial term. It was a commercial word saying that you were purchased for liberation. You were purchased with a high cost. And so when Peter talks about silver and gold that they were used to, ransoms being connected to things that were precious metals, things that were of great value, what he's wanting us to know is that our ransom, why we're made holy, is because the precious blood of Jesus came as a lamb without blemish in perfection to touch every unholy place in your, in your life. To actually make you more and more like him. See, when you come to this table, what you're tasting is God's work through that spotless lamb. We just talked in our men's Bible study about through Hebrews chapter nine, a, a chapter that talks all about how is Jesus the best sacrifice. How has his blood so powerful? Think about all the, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of, if you have a weak stomach, the Old Testament can be hard because there was blood sprinkled everywhere. There were aromas and smells and things that just filled your nostrils with the smell and sounds and sights of God's work and payment to, to cover your sin. And yet what he does in Jesus is to actually do a sacrifice that no other sacrifice is needed. His blood is so precious, so costly on his part that you know what holiness usually costs? Us. It costs death. But you know what God does in complete reversal? He puts the cost all on him. So that now in the aroma of the Lord's nostrils, there is never a moment, not one moment, that you are forgotten or not thought of. The smoke of the sacrifice of Jesus consistently goes up to the Lord so that you are constantly held, so that you can leave this table knowing, I can live for the one who has given everything for me. Nothing else in all of creation has given up this cost for you. This is why you're becoming more and more like him. The standard is Jesus and no one else. Amen? Amen.